Hey peeps, it's me, Christine, and I want to share with you a game-changing product that has improved my sleep and daily health. So let's dive in. You all know through my journey, I have struggled with sleep, being afraid of it, not getting quality sleep, and not being able to regulate my temperature throughout the night. I definitely learned the hard way, but sleep matters big time. It's when your muscles repair, your brain detoxes, and your body can work on cellular renewal. We just can't afford to miss out on an adequate amount of high-quality sleep, which is kind of hard when you have a rare disease. There's not much that I control in this real life, but one of the easiest and most effective ways to get better sleep every single night is through temperature regulation. Studies actually prove cooler temperatures lead to a deeper, more restful sleep, and that insomniacs actually lack this natural drop in core body temperature, which is what keeps them up at night. Personally, I run hot. This means that even if my room is super cold, I wake up in a pool of sweat, uncomfortable, changing my clothes several times throughout the night. It's frustrating for obvious reasons, and this is why I was so relieved to discover this transformative products from Chili. The Cube from Chili Sleep is a system that fits right over the top of your mattress and uses water to control the temperature of your bed, which helps lower your internal temperature and triggers deeper, relaxing sleep. Since water has 30 times more thermal conductivity than air, these systems are a lot more effective than just cranking up the AC. I mean, I keep my house at 65, so it has to be true. Ever since I started using the Cube system, I've noticed I fall asleep a lot faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. (laughs) Now, my wife is not a polar bear like me and likes to sleep a little bit warmer, so I love that we can each have our own temperatures on either side of the bed. Chili products can range between 55 and 115 degrees. Right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilisleep.com backslash findyourrare20, you get 20% off the Cube All Sleep Systems with Find Your Rare 20. Sleep is something we could all use more of, and we can all take small steps towards getting better sleep to improve our life in big ways. I hope you'll check out the Chili Sleep System and see why I love their product so much. Hey, peeps. We are back for another episode of Because We Are Strong. Today, I have got Christine, who let me tell you, I found her on Instagram and immediately knew just by the name although it's a seat, she was going to be someone I wanted to connect with. Her newly published book, Chronic, details how she went through her late 20s with an autoimmune disease. I don't think this woman needs any introduction. So I'm your host, Christine. Let's dive in. This is the Because We're Strong podcast, where we sit down every week to get your stories and insight on how to navigate this rare life. You can expect everything real and raw in the hopes that your story, along with ours, helps another person who is dealing with a similar rare struggle. So grab your favorite drink, a comfy blanket, and buckle in, because rare disease isn't for the faint of heart. Christine! Hey! Hi, Christine! (laughs) How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So glad to be here. No, thank you. Uh, So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about how you ended up on this rare path? Sure. Yeah. So um, I all started when I was 
15 years old. Um, I was always a pretty energetic kid and loved being involved in lots of things. And um, it was probably the summer before my junior year in high school, I went on vacation with my two best friends who are still my best friends to this day. And they were kind of laughing and making fun of me and said, I have never known anyone who goes to the bathroom more than you do. And of course, as a 15, 16 year old girl, what is more embarrassing than poop? True. Kind of laughed it off and was like, yeah, you know, it's kind of great. I can eat whatever I want and it it doesn't really matter. Um, But over a year and a half, that sort of led to a journey of it being this embarrassing inconvenience to be going to the bathroom all the time to something that pretty much consumed my my entire life. Um, I started you know, what went from every, you know, every, uh, now and again to getting sick, um, after every meal, I would immediately have to run to the bathroom and get sick. Um, eventually I started having blood when I would go to the bathroom. Um, I started dropping weight very quickly and I just felt this soul crushing exhaustion and I couldn't figure out why. And, you know, my parents saw me getting sicker and sicker. And I think, you know, we don't want to look at things that are uncomfortable and scary. And so I downplayed it for a really long time. Um, but eventually my folks took me to the doctor. Um, this is unfortunately not an uncommon story, but it took a while to get a diagnosis. Um, you know, we heard a lot of things like, Oh, she's just a perfectionist or maybe it's an eating disorder. Um, you know, and looking back as an adult, I think, you know, perfectionism usually doesn't make people poop blood. I, I was just going to say that is a new one to add to the list. Like, yes. wow, that, that's, that, that was good. Right. So, so, you know, we kind of got blown off a few times and it just, it was not getting better. And, um, the, my, by my senior year, I was just, you know, sleeping all the time. Um, I, you know, I really tried to be careful about when I ate because I didn't want to have to immediately have to run to the bathroom. What if there wasn't a bathroom around? Um, but eventually, you know, my parents kept pushing and fighting and, um, advocating and we went to see, um, a GI doctor and I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called Crohn's, which is a version of IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, real sexy stuff. (laughs) Um, and how old were you at this point? Right. Cause like you're supposed to be like living your college dream or, you know, um, you know, all that good stuff. So, so, so my, when I was diagnosed, it was November of my senior year. And I, you know, looking back, I didn't really talk about, you know, my best friends again, who are still my best friends when they, when they read the book I wrote, they were like, God, Chris, we feel so bad. We didn't know how, big this was or how sick you were. And, you know, I, I tell them, of course you didn't, because I didn't let anybody know. Um, you know, it was, it was tough. You know, I look back at like my freshman year in college and it was really, really hard because I think it probably, I was in denial for about a year and, um, and then freshman year, you know, college is such a crazy time. Anyways, of change. All my friends went away to school. My parents were really afraid to let me go away because I think they wanted to keep an eye on me and have me close, which, I understand now as a, as a parent myself, but, um, my freshman year in college was really rough. And I think I went into a pretty big depression as like a delayed reaction to everything I had been through the year and a half, you know, leading up to that moment. But no one could tell because, you know, you don't look sick. People would say, you're so young. You don't look sick. You know, you don't look sick. And also, right. Like depression doesn't always look like, um, staying in bed and, 
being like sad all the time, if that makes sense. No, it does. I think I really vacillated between high, you know, I'm definitely high functioning anxiety. So I think my depression kind of did, you know, morph into this high functioning, like, you know, what can I control? I can control my grades. I can control, you know, um, you know, how much I exercise I can control the, you know, and it's, it was just a really strange time. And I think, honestly, I always say it took me about two years to get a diagnosis. It took me another 10 years after that to accept my diagnosis. And then another 10 years after that to really understand my diagnosis. So it's, it's definitely been a journey. Yeah, that one hit hard because I think you're right. There's there's all these different stages. And there's also, I think, all grief isn't linear. And there's no right or wrong way to pick up the pieces when something like this happens. But I do think, right, one of the things that you said that hit me because I felt this way even as a patient, getting sick. I got sick at 27. And, you know, one of the stages I went through was, oh, my God, there's so many people around me suffering. How the hell did I miss that? There was a ton of guilt that came with that, like missing that, feeling like I should have been, you know, more sensitive. And I feel like I'm a, a compassionate person. So it was super hard for me to wrap my brain around that. Like one yeah. in 10 Americans. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, you know, I would never wish chronic illness on anyone, but I do think it changes a person and you do become more aware and more sensitive and more empathetic to this sh- maybe something that's more subtle that most people might not recognize. Like I can pick up when people are in pain or upset, probably more so than I would if I didn't have this experience because I've lived it, you know, and I, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge anyone. People are living their lives and they've internal battles that they're facing. And I think, you know, it took a long time for me to just to even open up about this. Like I didn't, I didn't really want people to, you know, I always felt like, Oh, it could be worse it's not that bad. You know, I kind of lied to myself and downplayed, but you know, that actually led me on a journey to in my late twenties where I hit a serious brick wall, um, and ended up in the hospital for about a week. And it, it really changed my life and my whole relationship with my, not just with my chronic illness, but with my body and with my, my spirit, because I really had turned my body into an enemy for so long because underneath this bubbly girl who was achieving all these things on the outside. On the inside, I was afraid and anxious. I kept living under this like fear of when's my next flare up? What if I have to get, you know, more intense medication? What if I need surgery? Oh my, you know, it was just like this constant, like fear kind of like living and eating at me beneath the surface. And I thought if I just keep moving and achieving and building and doing things, it won't find me. And I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso, but I I was giggling because one of the episodes they said, you know, problems are like mushrooms. They grow bigger in the dark. And I just laughed because I was like, Oh my God, that's a great one. Yep. It's true. I mean, I, you can't, you can't really accept and process what you're not willing to look at yourself. And so I think that was a really huge lesson for me that you can't outrun yourself. And, you know, yes, there's this thing inside me that I I may never be able to fix, but that doesn't mean I'm powerless. And, you know, I, I actually do have choices and I am empowered in what is within my ability to control. And I just had to kind of grow up and and, and get to know my body in a different way instead of being pissed off at it all the time. No. And I think you said a few powerful things, one of which was um, that 
and this is something like, you know, I have hit rock bottom myself. And, and the most powerful thing I think for me was realizing that if I embraced my darkness and everything that was me, rather than try to run away from it, I can, I could control it. You know, like I could control then the darkness, right? I can control what happens and ultimately, right. That control freed me. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't go away. It just shifts and it moves and it shows up in other ways. For me, it was showing up in irritability. It was showing up in even greater anxiety and it was certainly affecting my symptoms. So it's funny when I, when I wrote chronic, I started doing a lot of research and, you know, I was, I was kind of not laughing, but, um, I found this piece of research that said, well, you know, studies show that we now know for certain that anxiety will exacerbate symptoms of IBD. And I was like, yeah, no shit. Like, and you know, patients have been saying that all along. So there is that like mind body connection that I'm not saying I can sit and go do yoga and meditate and I'm going to heal myself, but when my anxiety is up and when, you know, our fight or flight stress response is triggered, that's releasing, you know, hormones and, and, and chemicals in our body that's just going to cause more inflammation. And so, you know, if I don't deal with that, it's, it's just going to get bigger. So. Yes. I think there's that, but then there's also, you know, a lot of people struggle with the fact that, you know, what happens is, Oh, it's just like, um, for me, the first thing they were like, you're so good as a therapist. I'm like, you don't even know me as a therapist, but okay. But you're so good that like, you have such a high level functioning of anxiety that now your body's turning it against you. And we went down this whole, like only mental health route. And I feel like that's where it gets dangerous, right? Is because the chicken or the egg, does it matter? Like, even if it was anxiety, my, my body still started to like fight itself. And so, and you know, then it's this vicious cycle and I feel like we try to separate them so much and that leads to a lot more, you know, stress because then it's like, you get this stigma that like, if it's mental health, it's not as real or, you know, it's or like you almost like, like, did I cause this? You know, like, yeah, I, exactly, I was just going to say that, Christine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I didn't realize, you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about grief and I think this is something that's not talked about enough in, in the chronic illness community or rare disease community is I didn't realize for years that I needed to grieve what I thought would be like, I was like, I got my diagnosis and I was like, cool, give me my medicine. I don't want to talk to you again. Like shut the door. Goodbye. Don't talk to me about it. And it took me a long time to realize that I had, I needed time to process and that it is, I didn't know if I deserved to grieve and I didn't know how to. And so I think just the message of like, yeah, it is, it is, you're not, you know, you didn't lose a person, but you lost, you know, you're grieving your health. You're grieving the fact that you do have to maybe take medicine for the rest of your life. Or maybe the fact that you're 19 years old and have to think about things like colonoscopies and like, Yes. Stuff like that. Like no one wants to do that. So I kept trying to find like that, you know, chin up buttercup and, you know, it could be worse. And that really is just such toxic positivity and it doesn't help. It's okay to be like, I'm pissed and I'm really sad. So I'm going to take my and feel it and then move on. Yes. And that doesn't also mean that like you, um, you know, I, I like two things that one, a therapist said to me, which was, you don't have to be thankful for your cards that you were dealt because somebody else's cards are different, right? Like it, you don't have to like be like, 
this whole idea that it's like, well, it could be worse. It could be worse. One moment of just saying this really sucks. Yeah. Does not define your entire perspective or your gratitude or your empathy. Like it, it just allows you to be in that moment. And like you said, I mean, I personally feel like I did lose a person. I spent 27 years of my life as this person. And that person didn't like X, Y, and Z. One of which being like, um, really big, like doing this, right? Like, and that person was not creative in the same way as like, I'm creative now. And that person just like bought everything for a party. Now I make everything, you know, like it's there, it's a whole person. I mean, down to my, my taste buds because of medication, you know? And, um, I do, I feel like there is a pre and a post me Mm-hmm. And I struggle. Everyone's like merge the two, and I and I struggle to merge the two. When I'm doing things that I used to like, I feel like I'm cheating on my my who I am now, yep. and vice versa. And that's a really hard thing. Sometimes I think the hardest grief is like this kind of grief or grieving. You know, when you're a breakup or a relationship. And I mean, you're sound fortunate that your support system like you know stayed with you. But you know, I know I lost a lot of people because of getting sick. Yeah. No, I mean, I would say when I was first diagnosed my, my, you know, and God bless my high school boyfriend, he was the kindest person, but you know, that first month I, you know, we broke up, but I'm sure it was too much. I mean, I, I get it, you know, and, and that's okay. Um, and, and, and I don't, you know, you know, you're 17, whatever, but, um, I, I do think that it is entirely possible to grieve and feel grateful to be afraid and to feel hopeful. Like these aren't you know, binary emotions, it's complex and we're human beings. And I think sort of allowing ourselves to feel what we feel. And, you know, I write about this in in the book Chronic, like sometimes you just have to sit in the ick, you know, it just feels icky and it feels gross. But what I have learned and I have to relearn every single day of my life is that when those feelings bubble up, the more I resist them, the bigger they will become. And so when I got out of the hospital, I started thinking about, so Long story short, I was having really bad symptoms for probably a year. And I, at that point, had a three-year-old and a, no, I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old and was in like a crazy job. And I was just- I do want to quickly ask you though, Christine, yeah. what, what, tell me, like chronic illness and pregnancy is a hot button topic. And I know that we could get like down a rabbit hole with this, but I, if you don't mind, like quickly just, I mean, you just talked about having two of them, but also being super sick. Were you- How was your experience with that? Because that's also not talked about. Yes, yes. So it's interesting because I was always told that for Crohn's disease specifically, a third of women get better with pregnancy, a third of women get worse, and a third stay the same. Um, And so with my first daughter, I had a wonderful pregnancy. Um, It was a great experience. But after I had her, and this is where being an educated patient and, and, and would probably have been a good thing for me at that point. I didn't realize that as someone with um, Crohn's disease, I'm not supposed to be taking ibuprofen, like not supposed to take it at all. Well, in my 24-year-old mind, I was very naive and I thought, well, my doctors know I have Crohn's. They'll tell me what I can and can't take. I was having a lot of pain after after I gave birth to my daughter, just with nursing. I had a really hard time with it. And they said, oh, just take ibuprofen every four to six hours. You can take it as much as you need to. And I was like, okay. So- that I think, plus the stress of just being a new mom, completely triggered a a really bad flare up. Um, and you know, it's interesting because um, 
people would say things like, oh my God, you lost so much weight after you had your baby. I wish I could do that. That's how I hate you. And I'm like, you have no idea what I'm going through. Like, so then with my second daughter, I actually did have a flare up while I was pregnant with her. And let me tell you, being pregnant, having (laughs) constant diarrhea and then being on prednisone, which is, you know, my friend Natalie calls it the devil's tic tac. I was, I was going to say, have, have you seen, I literally, literally just posted about prednisone the other day. That's how you and I met each other. That's, I like commented on something and I was like, yep, it's, it's the best and the worst thing in the world. Uh, yeah. I think you actually said the devil's tic-tac and that's what caught my eye. I was like, I need, to, I need to meet her. <laughs> I can't, I can't claim that. My, my friend Natalie Hayden uh, told me that and it made me laugh, but I mean, I was hormonal and bitchy cause I was pregnant. I was hormonal and bitchy cause I was on prednisone. But um, I, I think what happened with that is I, so I was on, I had to get on a course of prednisone when I was pregnant. I had my daughter um, and I just stopped taking care of myself. I think as a new mom with a chronic illness, you just feel like there's not enough time to take care of yourself because you have this new little life. And I would say that's when you need to double down on taking care of yourself and asking for help. You know, sometimes we can be stubborn to do it all ourselves. Very stubborn. <laughs> That actually is what kind of, I would say from the moment I was pregnant and had my flare up with, with my youngest to when I ended up in the hospital when she was two, I don't think my, my, I ever went into remission. I think it just got worse and worse and worse. And I felt like, well, this is just the way life is. I don't have time to nap. I don't have time to take care of myself. I don't have time to call the doctors and fight with the insurance companies about my medication. So if I don't take it for a week, no big deal. Like, I will say though, this like hits home for me because no, I'm not a mom, but like there are responsibilities. Like you don't get like time off from life because you're chronically ill, if that makes sense. And so I know it's doubled definitely more when you're a mom, but this to me is resonating so much with what like, wow, I thought I was the only one that felt like taking a shower. Like I had no time. Yeah. I think, you know, we no one is going to give you or I permission to take care of ourselves, but also no one is really going to judge us for it either, except for ourselves. Like I have, you know, I used to never nap. I used to be like, oh my God, there's so much to do. My house is a mess. Blah, la 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 la. Like that's lazy. And I really feel like once I gave myself permission, cause no one was like, you're going to take a nap. Like no one said that to me. Once I realized how, beneficial rest was, I was like, wow, this is simple. I can do this. You know, I'm not, it's not some kind of toxic medication. I mean, that's when our bodies and our cells regenerate. So I think something as simple as even napping and giving ourselves permission to nap. I mean, permission right there. And we are, I feel like we look for it in all the wrong places. Like we need to look inward to be like, give it to yourself. Yes. Like give yourself permission to do what you need to do. Right. And, and, and to say no, you know, like I used to say that, like, one of the things that really kind of clicked for me in my mind was like, why am I saying yes to things I don't want to do so that I can make someone else comfortable? Like, why am I doing that? Like, I would rather say a, a really like strong no and an, an authentic yeses. I realized I was saying so many lie, like un, inauthentic yeses because I just didn't want to let anyone down. But the person I was yep. letting down the most was myself. So every day. Right. And it was, and, and I'm not like understanding like, um, why these things were happening. If that makes, does that make sense? Like why, why is this like this? Why am I, et cetera, et cetera. And I, 
like I said, I know I took it for a little bit off topic, but when you said that, I was like, I really need to ask her because, you know, as a woman who, you know, potentially wants to get pregnant, it's not really talked about, or it's talked about in a very, in a way that's like, um, I don't want to trigger anyone or make anyone uncomfortable. So I don't want to ask, yeah. you know, I knew I could ask you because, but, um, I, like I said, I think this is just one of those topics. Yeah. So I would say if anyone with, you know, a chronic or rare disease is thinking about, you know, getting pregnant, you know, talk with your doctors, have a really open conversation, but also like get your mind right. Like there are no awards for being like superwoman. Like it is per- like, if someone's like, Hey, what can I do for you? Don't say, Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, you know what would be great? Would you mind like picking up some groceries? I'll Venmo you the money. You know, would you mind picking up the kids from school? I really need to nap. I'm exhausted. Um, would you mind sitting with the baby for an hour so I can go take a bath and just rest? Like have canned things ready because if wow, that was like solid advice. I'm gonna put those in the show notes because like <laughs> that that was like my sister is about to be a new mom and um she's due in December. I'm gonna give her that advice just for like life advice. I mean, I think that's good advice for anyone. I mean, it's people do want to help. They're just not sure how. So I guess if you're someone who's asking someone that don't ask them, what can I do? Just do, just do something. <laughs> They'll be happy. With oh, yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. Cause I agree. Like, cause like, you know, everyone's going to say kind of, no, no one wants to intrude, you know, on anyone's life. Um, but I think it's part of like, you know, the showing up, like show up for your people. Like, um, I mean, so everyone's life is busy, yeah, you know? Like, I think there's nothing wrong with having things. Like if someone says, what can I do for you? Taking a moment to either say, God, that's a great question. Let me get back to you. Cause I actually do could use a little help or just have a couple canned responses or just listen, take a breath and listen to your body. Your body will tell you if you're, if it's tired, if it's overwhelmed, if it's, you know, in need of, you know, a God, like I said, a 20 minute bubble bath, like yeah. Can you come over and hold my baby so I can clean my body? Thank you. <laughs> Would be great. <laughs> Would be fantastic. No, I think that this is, like I said, I feel bad because I know that I took us really no, that's off what this is about. Um, I mean, track, but I, I would, but I just felt like I couldn't no, let it go. We could have a whole other conversation about motherhood and chronic illness. There's lots of women out there who are, who are doing it and figuring it out. Yeah, I was going to say part two, Christine, um, don't be surprised when I'm, you get the email yeah, from no, me. Yeah, for sure. Um, but on, on that note, I'm not sure if you remember where we were, but um, naturally my brain fog won't let me remember that. But I think we were just kind of getting to you. One of your daughters was two and it was this bare, bad flare up. Yes. So I had this bad flare up that eventually I just refused to slow down. And I I literally was afraid that if I stopped, I would never get back up. So I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And um, it, I was, you know... I kept getting this horrible pain in my upper stomach. I couldn't figure out why. Went to the ER. They're like, oh, you have pancreatitis. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I'm going to go home now. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, you you have to stay here. And I talked my way out of leaving the hospital. And it kept coming back. Long story short, I was having such a bad flare-up with my Crohn's. It was starting to affect other organs. And instead of taking the time I needed and following up with my doctors and doing all the things, again, I was like, maybe if I don't look at this, it won't be real, which of course is a terrible plan. So, um, but also completely reasonable when you're a full-time mom, you're working full-time, like, and healthcare itself is a full-time. So overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. Um, 
But I ended up in the hospital for a week. It was supposed to be two days. I was there for six and I had nowhere left to run. I was stuck with myself and my thoughts. Um, and you take a type A girl's, uh, you know, freedom away, her laptop away, her phone away, her food away. Cause I was, um, I was only on a liquid diet because I was so inflamed. It was a, it was the hardest, most beneficial week of my life. And it completely changed my, um, life forever in the best way. And I think it was for me personally necessary to go through that kind of breakdown to rebuild because I was on such shaky ground. I had to learn to stop saying I'm fine when I'm not. I had to learn to stop pushing myself when I needed rest. I had to learn to start asking for help. And one of the things that week taught me was I kept thinking about like, how did I get here? How did things get so bad? You know, they wanted to do surgery to remove my colon and rectum and give me a bag. And I was like, I kept insisting, but I'm not sick. I'm fine. You know, like I was literally like out of my mind in denial. It was, it was bad. It was, I was on, I was on the denial, the denial bus big time. But when I thought about, you know, I have these, these things that I cannot control, but what is in my power to control? I thought about my cousin who had been in recovery since she was 16. And, you know, the whole, the whole mantra of Alcoholics Anonymous is one day at a time. And this concept of surrender. And I was like, okay, if alcoholism is her disease and sobriety is her version of remission, what can I learn from how she approaches her chronic illness of alcoholism with what I'm dealing with? And I realized there were certain things that she was doing every day to help kind of stack the deck in her favor of staying in her her space of sobriety. And so I, I drew this tripod in my, my journal after I got out of the hospital. And I thought there's these three things that are within my control, right? I can't, I can't control that I have a chronic illness, but I can control how I react to it. There's three things that I know when I don't honor them and do them every single day, this, this tripod that I'm balancing on gets really weak and wobbly. And so I write about it in the book and I actually developed worksheets to give to folks because it is helpful is, and I call it the wellness and remission tripod. So side one is medication as prescribed. Now I'm no doctor as prescribed. Now I'm not a doctor because no, I'm not, I'm serious. Like, cause I'm someone who tends to do less as prescribed and more as I feel will make me more productive yep. in a day, which is. Yeah. So I always laugh and say, I'm no doctor, but apparently medication doesn't work unless you take it as prescribed. So (laughs) (laughs) I I get that. And I would not have believed you (laughs) until recently. Well, and I think a lot of people, that's something that I didn't hear other people talk about. But once I started saying that, they were like, oh yeah, I'm guilty of that too. You know, I would, I I would let my reason. And that's so normalizing, honestly, because like, I'm like, can't believe like what a relief I feel in this moment that like, Oh, like I'm not the only one that's sitting here abusing their medication. Yeah. Like, well, for thanks. me, for me, it was like almost the opposite because it didn't logically make sense to me why I would take medicine if I wasn't feeling sick. Like once I was in remission, I'm like, well, why do I need medicine? Well, that's why you're in remission because you're taking your medicine. So like I had to get right with myself and my medication to be like every day as prescribed, don't skip a dose. Don't let it get, don't let it run out and wait a week to get it refilled. Like just grow up, just take your medicine. Okay. So that, that was the one. Thing. I, I love this. This is amazing. Yes. 
And I, I read about it in the book and I'm like, I know you don't want to do it. I know it's expensive, but with all due respect, get the fuck over it. Like, I love you, but you're going to have to get over this one. Yes, it's a mental hurdle. It doesn't make sense to take medication for the rest of your life. And I'm sorry, but like, again, our yes, that, that with, I can control that. So that's one. The second was talking about mental and emotional health. I, for the life of me, do not understand why doctors and physicians who see patients with chronic illness are not doing mental health screenings every time they have a visit. Like it's agreed. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into offices and as a therapist, I know what to say to be heard. And I can't tell you how many times I would say things that should have at least caused a screener to see if I was going to like, and I was just in awe of the fact that like, I'm like, I tell, I'm telling you, I don't want to live right? anymore. I, I'm actively telling right. you this. But they're so focused on like the thing that they specialize in. But it's like, you know, my daughters, I they're 17 and 14 now. Anytime. There's no way you have a 17 year old daughter. True. It's so bizarre. I'm like, what is happening? Um, but whenever they go for their annual, like their annual checkup or wellness visit, they always get a depression screening. There's no, it's, that's not even a question. It's just part of the process. And they're, they fill it out while we're in the room waiting for the doctor. And as soon as the doctor comes in, we hand it over and they go over it together. Like that kind of conversation, that quick moment should be part of, you know, when someone gets diagnosed with a chronic illness, let's talk about your mental and emotional health. Let's talk about the grieving process. Let's talk about, you know, all these things that you might be going through. And here is a recommendation, not just for um, you know, a dietitian or, you know, somewhere to get your lab work done. Here's a list of references for therapists who specialize in trauma, who specialize in medical things, because you're going to need it. Like, let's have a conversation. Well, and yes, but also, and then it also takes away the stigma that like the, but you don't look sick because you're encompassing it into the actual treatment plan and not treating it as like, well, have you made, have you checked your mental health? And it's like, then it feels like I'm responsible for doing this to myself. And that's a horrible thing. Right. I mean, the intersection of chronic illness and mental health is my jam. Like we have got to talk about this. Physicians need to talk about this. Patients need to talk about this. We need to start really understanding because it is, people are suffering. And again, if you go back even to just the physical symptoms, it does make physical symptoms worse. It doesn't necessarily cause them, but it will certainly exacerbate them. So, so medication as prescribed every day, mental health, check in with my mental health. I do it every single day. Now for me, you know, I see a therapist, you know, every other week I take, I proudly take anti-anxiety medication. Like I'm not even shy about that. And, you know, doing things like diaphragmic breathing and, um, you know, just sort of other kind of little things to like, just sort of check in, like, how am I feeling? How am I doing? And then the third sort of leg of that tripod is what I call real self-care. Now there's a difference between I'll call like Instagram self-care and then like real, right? Like I love the mammy petty just as much as the next girl, but that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, things like real self-care is taking naps like good nutrition. I'm not, and I will never use the word diet because I think it's a bogus word, but like, how do you feel when you put Diet Coke in your body? Like for me, not great. And look, I'm not like a health nut, but I really do try to, like that to me is a form of self-care. Setting healthy boundaries is such a great form of self-care. You know, having really great, like making time for like authentic connections is a form of self-care, but like saying authentic yeses and definitive no's is a form of self-care. So like, those three sides of that, like tripod, medication as prescribed, mental and emotional health, and real self-care, I could do those things every single day. And it might not 
cure anything, but it sure as hell stacks the deck in favor. I love that. Yes, because that's the thing is that I think, at least for me in the beginning, everyone would talk about things like this, right? And they were making it seem like if I just did these things, like everything would be better, but actually it really wouldn't. And and that was the misleading thing. And I love the way you just put that because it is exactly true. It stacks the mm-hmm. deck in your favor. And I just, I know you have to run. So I actually just wanted to get like the quick yeah. lowdown on the book. Um, because I think it's, I, I love everything you're saying and I'm assuming a lot of it is in the book. It is. It is. So, um, chronic came out this past August, um, and it's available on Amazon. Um, you can just look up chronic Christine rich and it's there. Um, it's, uh, in, uh, paperback and an e-copy or an e-book version. And you can also find me on Instagram at Christine Rich underscore author. Um, I'll do lots of, you know, quotes and, and just different conversations. And, and I'm just so passionate about these types of messages. You know, the biggest thing I'll say is this, of all the people with um, autoimmune disease in the U.S., 80%, 80% are women. So autoimmune disease, disproportionately affects women. This is a women's health issue and we need to talk about it and we need to keep talking about it until we get better care, better advocacy, you know, just, you know, less stigma, you know, like I work in corporate America and, you know, it took me a long time to really embrace, like, do I talk about this publicly? Do I not? People going to think I'm weak. Like, if I'm not talking about it, like, then who is going to? And maybe it'll give the next person that feeling of being empowered. Like, yes, this is part of who I am, but I don't have to apologize or feel ashamed of it. And no, it's not. Absolutely. So that's it. I, I, that's it. Just my <laughs> little tidbits. No, but honestly, um, I think you're amazing. I think you have so many um, amazing points. And one of the things I think that sticks out to me about you is this idea too, like you said, 80% are women. And you know what? It's about time that women start yes. straightening each other's crowns and empowering each other and sticking together and, you know, less competition, more community. And as women, we can do so much good if we just get out of our own way. I always say whenever I go and forge into something new, whether it's at work or in, you know, just my volunteer work or anything, like I love to look left, look right and find two other women to link arms with because God knows that it was better than one and three is better than one. So um, I, I think that it there's just so much um awareness that needs to be raised and and if and if folks get nothing out of this like please know that chronic illness will affect your mental health and that doesn't make you a weak person or ungrateful it makes you human so like just embrace that and it's okay own who you are you know um and you know all the good and the bad and i think that's when you really are set free this friends is not the end of this christine and rare i can promise you that i will be ensuring that you know we get way more of her around here because i love what you have to say say christine thank you so much for being here sharing your thoughts sharing your story being vulnerable it makes all the difference. I just appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you to our listeners who tune in every week as we continue to bridge the gap between rare disease and the rest of the world. Until next time, live large and stay rare. Catch us next week for another episode. To continue the conversation about rare disease and all the unknowns that comes with it, join our Facebook group. Want even more rare? Become a VRP member on Patreon and learn more about our stories or how to share yours by visiting bwspod.com.